President Biden and Republican House Speaker McCarthy have reached a deal on the debt ceiling. The agreement prevents the worst possible crisis, a default for the first time in our nation's history. The bill must still be approved by both chambers of Congress. It's Monday, May 29th, Memorial Day. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody and for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Uganda's president has approved harsh anti-LGBTQ legislation. Also, an increase in visitors to Antarctica has activists and scientists worried about the impact. For example, some tourists went off the prescribed path at a, at a visitation site and they trampled it. And several years later, nothing had recovered. And the fictional Roy family exits stage left. You'll hear about the series finale of Succession. It's 4.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The U.S. Navy Band marking Memorial Day at Arlington National Cemetery, where President Biden and other dignitaries gathered to pay tribute to the nation's war dead. NPR's Jackie Northam reports Biden stood in silence as he took part in the annual wreath-laying cer ceremony at the tomb of the unknown soldier. During a somber ceremony under a gray sky, President Biden paid tribute to American service personnel who lost their lives on the battlefield. Every year, as a nation, we undertake this rite of remembrance. For we must never forget the price that was paid to protect our democracy. The president also talked about the death of his own son, Bo, an Iraq war veteran who died eight years ago of brain cancer. In the past, the president has suggested it was caused by exposure to toxic burn pits while serving in Iraq. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. Housing advocates say tens of thousands of people could lose rental subsidies under the newly reached agreement that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports that housing is among the many programs that are facing funding limits for at least two years. A hot housing market has seen rents skyrocket year after year, a key driver of inflation. To keep up with that, housing advocates say billions of dollars more are needed just to maintain current rental subsidies. They already fall way short of need. Only one in four people who qualify for rental aid actually gets it. Congress must still work out exact spending details, but the concern is that limits could lead to more evictions and homelessness. That's NPR's Jennifer Ludden reporting. When black drivers get pulled over by police, the officer's first 45 words hold clues about what's likely to happen during that encounter. NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce reports on what was learned when researchers examined body camera footage from more than 500 traffic stops. All of these routine traffic stops occurred over one month in one U.S. city. The researchers won't say which one. And they all involved black drivers. Jennifer Eberhardt is with Stanford University. Given the racial disparities uh, in who was stopped and searched and handcuffed and arrested, we, we, we wanted to focus on black drivers in particular. They report on their findings in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and say that stops that escalated were far more likely to start with the officer issuing a command and less likely to start with the officer explaining the reason for the stop. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A law allowing members of the armed services to access mental health treatment without going through their chain of command is now in effect. The Brandon Act was authored by Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton. It was approved in 2018, but it was not implemented by the U.S. Department of Defense until this month. Moulton says he was frustrated by the delay, but says the law will save lives. It's taken the services far too long to figure out the logistics of how to make this work, but the bottom line is that it's now available to everyone on active duty, and I know it's going to save a lot of lives. The Brandon Act is named after Brandon Caserta, a member of the U.S. Navy who died by suicide in 2018. Moulton says anyone suffering from mental health issues can also dial 988, the National Mental Health Hotline. In Charlestown, the USS Constitution is open for tours until 6 p.m. today. Earlier today, the ship's crew members took part in a Memorial Day remembrance ceremony. They read aloud the names of more than 390 crew members who died while serving aboard the ship. That was followed by a 21-gun salute at noon. It is said that in Texas, people do things in a big way. And that includes Celtics fans. WBUR's Barbara Moran caught up with Joshua Salazar of Corpus Christi. He flew to Boston for tonight's game against the Heat, and he's hoping to see the Celtics become the first NBA team ever to win a playoff series after losing the first three games. Salazar was hard to miss. I got the Tatum Jordans on. I got my custom Boston Celtics jersey. Got my fancy championship belt here, ready to go. Right. This isn't the, the game attire yet, though. I have my special game day outfit up in the hotel waiting. Salazar says his father was in the Army, so the family moved around a lot. He became a Celtics fan about 15 years ago when Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, and Ray Allen were on the team, the last time Boston won the championship. If the Celtics win tonight, then they will head to the finals to play the Denver Nuggets. It is 61 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-40s tonight, sunny tomorrow, highs in the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Data Iku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. On this Memorial Day, it's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. The promise of averting on a default on the nation's debt is now more within reach than it has been for months. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy finalized a deal to raise the nation's borrowing authority. And the president said last night this avoids a default. And the agreement also represents a compromise, which means no one got everything they want. But that's the responsibility of governing. The House will vote midweek, but the deal is being panned by some conservatives and some progressives. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us from the Capitol to talk about next steps. Hey there. Hey, Juana. So, Deirdre, first, let's start with the basics. What's in this deal? So it lifts the debt ceiling for two years, most notably past the 2024 presidential election. The deal uh, includes spending caps for non-defense programs for the next two years. It would keep funding levels at the same, roughly at the same level for 2024, and those non-defense programs would get a 1% boost in 2025. But as much as Republicans have argued this whole negotiation was about changing the trajectory of federal spending, this agreement only deals with those non-defense programs, which is really a small slice of the overall federal budget. It does not touch the biggest drivers of the debt, Medicare and Social Security. I talked to South Dakota Republican Dusty Johnson sort of about the limits of these talks. 
I think anybody who thought this was going to solve every single problem facing the union in one fell swoop probably needs to buy a ticket back to reality. The agreement does put a mechanism in place to try to incentivize Congress to actually pass all of its annual spending bills. If it can't, there would be a 1% across-the-board cut for a full year that would be set up for a vote. Okay, and can you get us up to speed now on the policy changes that we'd see here? The deal does have a few significant ones. One would help speed the approval of energy projects. The bill also includes some work requirements for some federal safety net programs like food stamps. It means that adults between 50 and 54 without dependents would have new work requirements, and those would go up through the year 2030. But those changes don't apply to Medicaid, which uh, Democrats were concerned about. And the bill actually removes some limits on work requirements or limits on those programs for veterans, homeless, and others who receive assistance like food stamps. The bill also claws back about $30 billion in unspent COVID funding. All right, Deirdre, I mean, I have to imagine this is not going to be a quick and easy road to President Biden's desk, right? (laughs) It's not. I mean, but Congress does need to act quickly. And as you know, they don't have a great track record of actually doing that. The Treasury Secretary said the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills as soon as June 5th. That's just a week from today. So tomorrow, the House Rules Committee is going to set up the rules for the House vote. There are two conservatives on that panel, we should note, Texas Republican Chip Roy and South Carolina Republican Ralph Norman, who oppose the bill. So they could try to block it in that committee. But Democrats could also help smooth the process to get it to the House floor. We expect a House vote Wednesday night. The Speaker pledged to give 72 hours between when the bill was released and when the vote would happen. It's 99 pages, so it's actually pretty short by most Hill standards for bills of this type. Uh, If it does get through the House and top leaders say they're confident it will, it heads to the Senate, which will call back members from recess and possibly vote as soon as Friday or over the weekend. But in the Senate, as you know, it will need 60 votes there to pass. The top Senate Republican Mitch McConnell endorsed the bill last night. And Deirdre, what is the message from the leaders of both parties to their members as to why they should back this deal? The Speaker and House Republicans are saying that they forced the president to negotiate and they got some budget cuts and policy changes. The president and Democrats and White House officials are touting what they got blocked from getting in a final deal, avoiding higher spending cuts and efforts to roll back the president's signature uh, domestic energy bill. We do expect defections from both the right and the left, uh, but we did get an endorsement from one group of House Democrats today. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you. Thanks, Juana. And now to France, which for months was gripped by protests against a measure to raise the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. Last month, that measure became law, and President Emmanuel Macron seems to have moved on. But have the protesters? NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. This month, Macron invited the CEOs of 200 multinational companies to a Choose France investment summit at the Palace of Versailles. An interviewer asked him whether it was hard to attract investors with scenes of protests and violence playing out on TV. La France est le pays le plus attractif d'Europe pour la quatrième année consécutive. For the fourth year, France is the most attractive country in Europe for foreign investment, replied Macron, a record 13 billion euros. I told Elon Musk, sure, you may have seen some violence, but that's not France. Those are extremists. The protests are peaceful and the strikes minimal. Protesters marched on the palace that day, setting off large fireworks. 
they also carried torches, just like the peasants who marched on Versailles in 1789 to overthrow the king. This president will refuse to meet the trade unions during our fight against the, the pension bill. Now he meet a lot of big capitalists here in the Palace of Versailles, the symbol of the absolute power of the monarchy. That's Mathieu Bolreda, head of the train drivers union. Macron promised the CEOs millions in tax breaks for investing in France. Bolreda says it's not Macron's money to give away. We the workers, we create this money. And he give this money to the bosses and he said there is no money anymore for the um, for the, the working class for our pension system so we are here to claim give me my money back riot police kept their demands from reaching the ears of macron and his guests but citizens have been dogging macron since the law passed last month banging pots and pans wherever he goes and a million French turned out on May Day. Many were angry not just at the pension reform, but at the undemocratic manner in which Macron rammed it through Parliament using a procedural measure and bypassing a vote he was likely to lose. Adrien Arias was at the May Day protest, carrying a sign that likened Macron to Nicolae Ceausescu, the Romanian dictator deposed at the end of the Cold War. It's not just the, the reform. No, it's about democracy. It's uh, clear for most of French people that uh, there's a really big problem with the same authoritarianism. Regardless, turnout at protests is dwindling, says Corinne Maloul, a political science professor at Sciences Po University. She believes Macron has moved on. Frankly, he's not wrong. I think he made a gamble that it, it'll die down if you keep not addressing it. And he's winning the gamble because we're not talking about general strike days anymore. We're not talking about huge uh, disruptive protests with tires on fire and all of that. That's, that's over. That's behind us. I don't think it's going to happen again. Unions have called another nationwide protest early next month hoping to push Parliament to rescind the retirement law and force it to a vote. Malul says Macron no longer has his absolute majority, but he believes he can work around Parliament. The message is, I don't care. Uh, you think I'm going to be stuck for the remainder of my term? I have four more years to go, and you think I'm going to just be a lame duck and do nothing? And no, I have the power of presidential decree, and that's what I can do. Macron has never been so unpopular, adds Malul. The retirement reform crisis has reinforced the perception that he is aloof, arrogant, and detached from reality, just like the French kings at Versailles. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Versailles. Wealthy nations and private investors are set to give Vietnam billions of dollars to help flight, fight climate change in a way that boosts the country's economic development. But as NPR's Michael Copley reports, the climate deal has come under fire because of Vietnam's human rights record. In 2021, Vietnam said it would eliminate or offset its climate pollution by mid-century. The pledge was the result of a campaign by leading climate activists. State media reported at the time that Vietnam would need financial help from wealthy nations to meet its goal. Vietnam wants to strengthen cooperation with international community in sustainable investment and development programs and projects in the time to come. A year later, a group including the G7 and big investors said they'd get Vietnam at least $15.5 billion through a program called the Just Energy Transition Partnership. But by the time the deal was announced, climate activists who'd paved the way for it were imprisoned, 
on what human rights experts say are trumped-up charges. Emily Palami Pradicit is a human rights lawyer in Thailand. She says the way the deal was handled leaves a troubling impression. That countries who are supporting the partnership and international financial institutions did not really care much about civil society and climate activists being in jail. Now, environmental and human rights groups are calling on President Biden and other world leaders to pressure Vietnam on its human rights practices. The groups want Vietnam to free all activists and stop suppressing civil society before it gets the climate funding. Activists say what's happening in Vietnam highlights a broader challenge of ensuring human rights are upheld as countries try to deal with the problem of climate change. Vietnam did recently release one of the climate activists, but so far, there's little evidence that the government is changing course. That's according to Ben Swanton. He works for a human rights group called the 88 Project. There's no desire or no political will to engage with civil society. Swanton says it's hard to see how a climate program that's aimed at benefiting local communities could succeed in that environment. Without the involvement of civil society, there will be no one to hold the government accountable when it backtracks on its promises. The White House and Vietnam's embassy in Washington didn't respond to messages. Plan for carrying out the funding program is expected by November. Michael Copley, NPR News. Earlier this year, a Chinese spy balloon put a lot of eyes and attention on the skies above the U.S. And since then, there's also been scrutiny about the ground below and who owns it. More on the growing federal and state efforts to restrict foreign ownership of farmland on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen on air, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play your NPR member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418, and coming up in about 10 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, Uganda's president has approved harsh anti-LGBTQ legislation. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by DEC, presentation coaches, designers, and writers who use the power of storytelling to help speakers connect with audiences. More at presentationsbydeck.com. And Weston Nurseries, offering a broad selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, annuals, and vegetables, and outdoor living pavers and wallstone products. WestonNurseries.com. Stock markets were closed today for the Memorial Day holiday. If you would like to go to the potentially historic Game 7 between the Celtics and the Miami Heat tonight in Boston and you do not have tickets yet, then you will need to be willing to part with a lot of money. The lowest ticket price on Ticketmaster is listed at around $700. The highest price ticket is $28,000. Prices on some popular secondary ticket market websites are similar. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. And the Coolidge Corner Arts Festival, returning for its 43rd year this Saturday, 11 to 6. Artists, music, food trucks, wine, and beer. CoolidgeCornerArtsFestival.com. Chances are you are accustomed to watching TV when and how you want. Well, you can now do the same thing with listening to WBUR. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. 
Download it in the App Store today. It is 60 degrees in Boston with lows tonight dropping to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, highs will hit the mid-60s. Wednesday, sunshine again, highs in the upper 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Every year, Memorial Day is a time for people to honor members of the U.S. military who have died while serving. For many, marking the holiday means gathering outdoors, grilling meats and vegetables. For actor Gary Sinise, it means playing music. Gary Sinise, a lieutenant in band, and I play bass. The 13-person band was in Washington, D.C. over the weekend for a special reason, to throw a welcome home celebration for Vietnam veterans 50 years after the U.S. suspended combat operations in Vietnam. When they came home from war, it was a bad time in our country. They didn't get any kind of welcome home. Many of them kind of disappeared into the shadows because it was not a good time to be a, a Vietnam veteran. You know, I just want to do something to acknowledge that Uh, We do welcome them home. We do celebrate them. We do appreciate their service to our country. Back in the 80s, I was very involved with supporting various Vietnam veterans organizations in Chicago. And, you know, and then after playing the, the disabled veteran in Forrest Gump, that kind of turned a little bit of a corner toward uh, trying to help our wounded, but it really all uh, just uh, kind of catapulted after the attacks of September 11th. I volunteered to go on support trips for the USO, and I would go out just on my own and shake hands and and, uh, meet with the troops and, you know, try to get around uh, as, you know, to the war zones and whatnot. But on one of the early trips, it was a big trip, big entertainment tour, giant tour uh, in June of uh, 03. And Kid Rock was on that tour and Leanne Womack was on that tour. and. And gosh, and I was just, uh, you know, a Gary Sinise, Lieutenant Dan, actor, uh, waving to the troops and that kind of thing. But uh, after I did five or six of those handshake tours where I'd just go out on my own, I, I finally convinced the USO to let me take the musicians with me uh, that, that I knew, the garage band players that I had. And so it started very grassroots back in, you know, 20 years ago, very rough. There's 13 members of the band. There's only three or four of us that were there in the beginning, and the rest of them have come aboard, you know, since then. (laughs) 
generally, for people that haven't heard the band, you know, when you tell them an actor has a band, they don't, you know, they don't kind of get too excited about that. But this is a, this is a top-notch band. We played a lot of shows. We played 500-something shows, and we played in the war zones, and we played in hospitals, and uh, we, oh, gosh, you know, Kuwait and Kandahar, and I mean, we've been we've been all over the place. And that's what the band is for. The band is. I don't play for a living. I I uh, I, you know, I make my living uh, as an actor and. I play for the mission of lifting spirits and, and raising people up. That's what, that's what I, I do with the band. So money that people contribute to the Gary Sinise Foundation allows me to do things like this today, which is provide uh, a festival atmosphere at a military base and lift people up and raise their spirits and, and uh, bring some joy and some fun. This is a, a foundation I started to, to, to give back to the men and women who protect our country and defend our cities, and, and we want them to know they're, they're appreciated. That was actor Gary Sinise talking to NPR about playing music for U.S. veterans. Sinise is the co-host of the annual Memorial Day concert at the U.S. Capitol and traveling with the Lieutenant Dan Band across the country. Time now for my unsung hero from the team at Hidden Brain, sharing the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Evelyn Flores. Growing up, her parents were were flower farmers in San Mateo, Mexico. One year when Evelyn was in second grade, they fell on hard times. Money was tight and school lunches were too expensive, so her mom would bring her food. Uh, that day, I remember that she didn't make on time, make on time, and I was starving because I was so hungry. So I feel like kind of worried. And I was like, "What happened? Why my mom is not here?" For lunch, first I eat, and then I play with my friends. But that day, I was kind of sad and worried because my mom didn't make on time. So I just decided to stay in the classroom. They usually close the classroom because even the teachers. Uh, take lunch at the same time. And that time, the teacher, she was about to close the classroom and she checked that there was nobody inside and she said that it was me. Mrs. Garcia came and she was like, hey, Evelyn, why are you not going out? And I was like, no, I just want to stay here. I'm in a bad mood. I, I, I don't want to play with anybody. I'm, I'm starving. And then she was like, wait a second, I'll come back now. And then she bought like a bottle of juice and then a sandwich for me. And she just go, hey, Evelyn, here's for you. Eat, eat this because you still have like three more hours for school and then you'll be starving. And I don't want you to feel bad. Just eat this. And she stayed with me and we started talking. And, and yeah, I, I love her personality and how she supports like she was, she was my first uh, best friend, and yeah, I, and I feel so so grateful for that. I want to be a teacher. I like to be a teacher. She was 
a huge inspire for me. Evelyn Flores is a student at Western Illinois University. She's majoring in Spanish education. You can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to record a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429. And coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll get the story on a new study about police stops of black men. The researchers found that in such stops that wind up escalating, differences are notable in the language used by the officer from the very first seconds of the interaction. That's ahead on All Things Considered. Listening to WBUR is a great way to follow the news, and so is checking your inbox. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today gives you a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org newsletters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Hurricane Ian killed 150 people. The storm that ravaged part of South Florida last fall could have been even more deadly if not for advances in forecasting. But many people in the path underestimated the storm surge. You've got to stop focusing on the wrong things. What scientists are looking out for at the start of another hurricane season. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Now that President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have agreed in principle to a deal to suspend the debt ceiling through 2024 and cap spending increases at 1% in 2025, the focus now is on getting enough lawmakers to pass it. The deal protects funding for medical care for veterans but would change work requirements for some recipients of government aid. This to avoid the U.S. defaulting on its debt for the first time in history. National Economic Council Deputy Director Bharat Ramamurti. This is a compromise where nobody's going to be 100% happy with it, but at the end of the day, the core progress that we've made over the last two years are preserved, and that's why the president encourages both the House and the Senate to pass it very quickly. Speaking there on NPR's Here and Now, a House vote on the deal is scheduled for Wednesday. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. will run out of money to pay its bills on June 5th.
Thousands of third graders in Tennessee may have to repeat the grade because of their reading scores on a standardized test. Tony Gonzalez of member station WPLN reports the state enacted strict new rules for reading and is now seeing families scramble to sign up for summer school and extra tutoring. State statistics show up to 60 percent of third graders, or roughly 40,000 students in Tennessee, could be held back. This has been worrying school administrators and parents like Brandy Jenkins for months. The stress that we're putting on these children is insane. This will 100 percent affect our COVID babies, and I don't understand how the lawmakers thought that this was a good decision. Jenkins is among thousands expected to file appeals beginning this week. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee says the scores show historic gains, but the results still leave many students at risk of being held back. Already, about 25,000 families had their third graders do retests. For NPR News, I'm Tony Gonzalez in Nashville. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu spent part of Memorial Day remembering the city's fallen veterans. Earlier today, she attended ceremonies for, at the Garden Cemetery in West Roxbury and Cedar Grove Cemetery in Dorchester. The mayor also took part in observances in Brighton at the Boston Police Veterans of Foreign Wars post-1018 and with the Puerto Rican Veterans Association. Memorial Day often is considered the unofficial start to summer, and there's some optimism in the Berkshires that this summer will be a good one for tourism. Jonathan Butler is with the Economic and Tourism Development Agency, One Berkshire. He says numbers are trending up for lodging and at arts venues, but Butler says while staffing levels are better than last year, problems persist. So that seasonal workforce has always been a big part of the Berkshire visitor economy and utilized by lots of our properties, you know, in the hospitality realm, in the cultural realm, um, in, in the outdoor realm. But it's definitely been a little bit slower to bounce back coming out of the pandemic. He adds that a bump in tourism during the pandemic has brought a younger group of visitors to the Berkshires than in years past. The Boston Celtics are on the brink of history and on the brink of returning to the NBA Finals for the second year in a row. They host the Miami Heat tonight in a decisive Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. WBUR's Fausto Menard has a preview. The Celtics needed a miraculous buzzer-beating shot to win Game 6 Saturday night in Miami. If they win tonight at the Garden, the Seas will become the first team in NBA history, that's 151 tries, to win a seven-game series after losing the first three. Miami and Boston have met in the conference finals in three of the past four years. Last year, the Celtics prevailed, winning Game 7 in Miami. Tip-off tonight is at 8.30. The winner advances to the NBA Finals to play the Denver Nuggets for the league championship. That series starts Thursday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 4.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. It's 60 degrees in Boston, lows dropping to the mid-40s overnight. For your Tuesday, highs in the mid-60s, a sunny start tomorrow, then some patchy smoke around in the afternoon because of fires in Nova Scotia. On Wednesday, sunshine highs in the upper 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. 
Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, instruction for students to catch up or get ahead, live online or in-person summer programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com NPR. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Uganda's president has now signed one of the world's harshest anti-LGBTQ laws. Homosexual acts were already illegal in Uganda. This new law means that anyone convicted could face life in prison and, in some specific instances, the death penalty. It's been widely condemned internationally. The White House said it was a tragic violation of universal human rights and called for its immediate repeal. We're joined now by journalist Halima Athmani from the capital, Kampala. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So tell us, what are the details of this new law? The law proposes a number of harsh penalties, and many are very specific. These include anyone convicted of homosexuality being imprisoned for life. As you mentioned already, it's already illegal to be homosexual in Uganda, but now queer people face very harsh penalties. At its most extreme, the so-called Anti-Homosexuality Act creates and defines the act of aggravated homosexuality, which it defines as having sex with vulnerable persons and children as an act that carries the ultimate punishment. This is politician Asman Vasaliwa, who introduced this legislation in the first place. So when you commit aggravated homosexuality, the law says you shall be liable to suffer death. In addition to this, people who are seen as promoting homosexuality could face up to 20 years in prison. It would also seek to prosecute those who knowingly allow gay people to have sex on their premises, from private residences to hotels. Okay, and so why did Uganda's parliament push this legislation to begin with? This is not the first time such legislation has been introduced, but previous attempts have either been repealed or the legislation has been watered down. It is worth mentioning that that a number of U.S. evangelical groups have been actively encouraging this legislation over the years. Most recently, the Arizona-based Family Watch International Group. Uganda is a very conservative, very Christian society in many quarters. Beyond this, Uganda and many African countries' attitudes towards homosexuality have been shaped by colonial era laws. President Yoram Museveni has long spoken out against what he calls divergent behavior. He previously called on Africa to, quote, save the world from homosexuality. There was a hope that under pressure from the international community, including the U.S., he would veto the law, but that has not happened. Okay, and what has been the reaction of the queer community in Uganda to this law? The LGBTQ community has been left in shock, speechless, and covered in a cloud of fear. Here's Frank Mugisha, the head of the banned sexual minorities Uganda. He says the international community should react to Uganda. They should target individuals who are engaged in direct uh, gross human rights violations and undermining democracy, but also corruption, abuse of other human rights as well. He's very worried about how the community will be affected. They are already people in hiding. I've talked to those from the community who have been kicked out of their homes by their families, who've had to abandon their children because they are gay and they fear prosecution. Many have simply had to leave the country that's if they can afford it. Mugisha says this is the moment for the international community to react to Uganda's actions. 
And so far, what has been the reaction internationally? The United Nations has said they are, quote, appalled by today's news. Many governments, including the U.S., have called the law draconian. The U.S. has threatened to cut health funding. And that means cutting aid aimed at fighting HIV-AIDS. According to a statement from PEPFAR, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria, and the UN, this law will put Uganda's anti-HIV fight, quote, in grave jeopardy, end quote. Halima Athmani and Kampala, thank you so much. Thank you. With the wind-down of COVID-19 restrictions, travel has surged, including to exotic places like Antarctica. More than 100,000 people are expected to visit the southernmost continent this season. That's 40% more than the highest number of visitors seen in past years. As NPR's Greg Allen reports, activists and scientists are concerned about the impact on Antarctica's wildlife and environment. 100,000 visitors to the nation's fifth largest continent may not sound like much, but nearly all trips take tourists to one area, the Antarctic Peninsula. Oh my God, we're in Antarctica and we're watching penguins. (laughs) It's the most northerly part of the continent, with coastal areas that are ice-free and teeming with wildlife. Claire Christian is with the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, a partnership of environmental groups. And the Antarctic Peninsula is actually, it's experiencing a lot of things all at once. There's an increase in tourism, There's an increase in interest in fishing for Antarctic krill, and the peninsula is one of the fastest warming areas on the planet. Only cruise ships with 500 or fewer passengers can land visitors on the continent. Even so, the demand for access to a few dozen sites on the Antarctic peninsula requires elaborate scheduling. Christian says during the season, several tour groups visit the most popular sites with penguins each day, sometimes with negative effects. For example, some tourists went off the prescribed path at a a visitation site and they trampled it, and several years later, nothing had recovered. Uh, so there is some vegetation in Antarctica, it did not recover. So we, we know that humans can have an impact there. Christian's coalition, along with scientists and some governments, want the group of nations that oversees Antarctica to take a firmer hand in regulating tourism there. Yu Fai Long is a professor at North Carolina State University who studied the impact visitors have on penguins. He says some colonies seem resilient and aren't greatly disturbed by tourist groups. But his research shows when penguins are nesting, chicks are vulnerable to predators and the elements, and visitors can be a dangerous distraction. If they are forced out of their nest for even for a few seconds, the, the, the babies are in big jeopardy uh, because of the predator, but also because of the temperature. On her trips to the region, Antarctic ecologist Ali Kristan says she's observed tour groups ignoring guidelines, disturbing wildlife, and also taking safety risks. There were staff that were putting their hands in the water by actively hunting leopard seals and encouraging guests to do the same, which is a tremendous safety concern. Leopard seals have been known to attack and sometimes puncture inflatable Zodiac boats used by guides. Tours to the Antarctic aren't cheap, ranging from several thousand to as much as $100,000 for a seven-day trip to an emperor penguin colony near the South Pole. Emperor penguins are listed as an endangered species because of fears they could be wiped out with the decline of sea ice linked to climate change. Kristan is concerned about plans by one company to fly visitors by helicopter to a vulnerable emperor penguin colony. Even if you fly a helicopter above, you can still be causing negative physiological impacts to the species. Currently, the most important group overseeing tourism in the Antarctic is the industry itself. The International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators has received mostly good marks for its guidelines, aimed at protecting wildlife and the environment.
The group's executive director, Gina Greer, expects the number of visitors to the continent will continue to grow. But she dislikes a phrase some use in the travel industry, last chance tourism. It shouldn't be for someone um, that last chance kind of perspective. When they come home, our goal and our hope is that they come back changed and they have a better appreciation for the world, as well as for the impact that all of us make down there. The 50 nations that are part of the Antarctic Treaty System have been discussing measures to manage the growth of tourism, possibly limiting activities, the opening of new sites for visitors, even the length of the season. More discussions are planned at the group's upcoming conference later this month in Finland. Greg Allen, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Black drivers are disproportionately stopped by police officers across the United States. Black drivers are also more likely to be searched or arrested, according to a growing body of research. Scientists are trying to understand how and why some stops escalate, and they say important clues can be found in the first 45 words spoken by the police officer. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce has more. When a police officer walked up to George Floyd in May of 2020, Floyd was in his car. Jennifer Eberhardt is a social psychologist at Stanford University. She says while millions of people know how Floyd was killed after police pulled him from the car, Very few people are familiar with what happened before he was removed. Body cam video shows that the initial contact with police came when an officer walked up and tapped on the car's window. I see your hands. Let me see your other hand. Floyd apologizes to the officers who stand outside his car window. Floyd requests the reason for the stop. He pleads, he explains, he follows orders, he expresses fear, right? What do we do? Put your hand up there. Every response to Floyd is an order. This pattern of abrupt orders and no explanations also shows up in a study Eberhardt and some colleagues just did, comparing police car stops that escalated with those that didn't. Given the racial disparities uh, in who was stopped and searched and handcuffed and arrested, we, we, we wanted to focus on black drivers in particular. She and some colleagues got body cam footage of routine traffic stops in one racially diverse mid-sized U.S. city. For privacy reasons, they won't say which one. They examined over 500 stops of black drivers and compared the first moments of those that ended with a search, handcuffing or arrest with stops that didn't go that direction. It turns out there was a clear difference in the first 45 words spoken by the police officer. Eugenia Rowe is a researcher at Virginia Tech. Something really striking that we found is that stops that escalate are nearly three times more likely to begin with the officer giving an order to the driver. Stops that escalate are also less likely to start with the officer giving a reason for the stop. And black men seem well aware of this, because when the researchers asked nearly 200 black men to listen to audio from the start of police stops. And we found that the officer's initial 45 words really significantly swayed um, black male participants' perception of the officer and their anticipation about how the stop would end, including uh, possible use of force. 
This study appears in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Tracy Mears reviewed it for the journal. She's a professor at Yale Law School. She says if so much can be gleaned from just the first 45 words. You know, it's possible that that's also telling us that that officer had other motivations for stopping the person in the first place. Especially if the officer doesn't explain why. Mears points out that in the one-month period covered by this study, police officers in this undisclosed city stopped more than twice as many black drivers as white drivers. And stops of black drivers were far more likely to escalate. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448, and coming up in about half an hour, you'll get a vantage point into the last century of development and urban sprawl in Los Angeles via a tour of the city's top makeout spots. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. You're part of the WBUR community. That's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, June 7th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details at wbur.org slash open meetings. It's 60 degrees in Boston with lows dropping to the mid-40s tonight. Tomorrow, a sunny start, then some patchy smoke in the afternoon because of some fires in Nova Scotia. Highs tomorrow in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, Celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Last night was a huge one for Succession fans. The show wrapped up four seasons of corporate backstabbing and family dramedy. NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour team has some thoughts. Aisha Harris, Linda Holmes, and Eric Deggins. And if you have not seen this episode yet, Consider this your spoiler alert. In the next few minutes, we'll hear where Roy siblings Kendall, Roman, Shiv, and her husband Tom landed. So, Linda, let's start with you. I know you have been recapping the season over the last few weeks. What were your predictions going into this finale, and did they bear out in any way? Well, the only prediction I really had was that somewhere in my gut, I felt like Shiv was going to wind up in charge of the company, which is sort of what happened. I would say it came a little bit true in that Shiv is really the one who is still 
Like now she's the CEO's wife. Yeah. Which, and she's going to look at Tom every day knowing how this happened. Even more irony is the fact that Shiv is the one who planted that seed in Matson's head to go for Tom. She gloated about how he will do very mm-hmm. terrible things, or, you know, yeah, disgusting things to, to get whatever he wants. Uh, <laughs> he will pay fealty to the largest ego in the room. Exactly. Exactly. What I really liked about this, though, was I've always said that this season has been about the family being forced to face the truth about itself in ways that it it has tried to avoid, but they're unable to avoid. And Shiv, in that boardroom vote, just suddenly realized that none of them could run the company. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, it didn't make sense for any of them to be in power. And so... You know, she sacrificed the family's togetherness, this bizarre togetherness that had kind of sprung up amongst the siblings. She sacrificed that because she knew that none of them should be running the company, which I thought was kind of an insight. Absolutely not. No. Why? No. Why? What? Just... I love you. I really... I love you, but I cannot stomach you. You know, she was willing to be truthful in a way that none of the other ones were. It's interesting because I don't think she necessarily went that far in terms of her epiphany. I think one of the biggest questions I had going in was, okay, are we going to bring up Kendall's accidentally killing someone (laughs) and then covering it up? Are we going to bring that up? And the fact that she brings it up and throws it out like kind of like this, you know, this trump card, like, okay, this is this is what I'm doing. It's both a low blow, but it's also very true because that was probably going to get out at some point. In a way, I can see her kind of trying to save Kendall somewhat, but then also had she been in that position herself, she would have taken it, I think. She might have taken it, but it seemed like when they were all together at their mother's house, they all kind of admitted that Shiv and Roman couldn't take a leadership position because the board wouldn't accept them. Right. Yeah, see, I agree more with Aisha. I thought that what she was choosing was more, she has very limited choices. And I think she's feeling like my only option to sort of retain some kind of position in all of this is to throw in with Tom, Mm -hmm. who I think she believes that Tom, despite all the trouble that they've had, I think she still sees that marriage as kind of her her best option. Yeah, but you know, Tom betrayed her twice in the final episode. Right. So why would she think she would have any power in a race to Royco where Matson owns it? Soft soft power, Eric. Soft Soft power. power. And, And, you know, in that scene where she's expressing... Don't you think there's maybe a relationship here? You don't get that vibe from him, you know? Yeah, but no. at the end, he stick, he puts his hand out. Right. He's wanted her back the entire time. He just didn't want to tell her mm. that he did. Yeah, I also, I think she probably has a sense that she knows how to control Tom and she can maybe have a little bit of power still, even though she's not going to get the credit for it, she will have some power there. So I, I kind of saw that as like a very strategic move on her end. Like Tom will be happy to be the boss at work, and Shiv will be the boss at home, I think. Because yeah. that's the way it's always been with them. I agree with Aisha. Well, I want to move on because Roman, I think for me, Roman is the person who the most gets it, at least in that very short moment during that big blowout scene between the three siblings after Shiv has said, I can't do this. I can't vote against the deal. Roman is very blunt. He's like, we are nonsense. Insert expletive. That's who we are. And I'm curious what you thought about how the arc of Roman has played out over the course of these seasons, especially in the, as it is shown in this finale. That character has had a wonderful arc and Kieran Culkin has just done an amazing job playing it. 
in various ways, again, they've each had to sort of face the reality of what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. And the only person who really can't accept it is Kendall. Roman eventually got to the point where he had to sort of admit, you know, the ways he's fallen short. And then at the end, you know, he's basically saying, look, we're all terrible. <laughs> we're, we're all full of it. Just admit it. Just admit it. Yeah, I feel like Roman, in some ways, Roman had the most optimistic ending to me, if you can use that <laughs> word, because Roman kind of just left. But Roman also says some extremely horrible things about Kendall's kids, which he blames their father for. Right. Dad's view was yours weren't real. What the f did you just say? Well, just not real. Real. Rome. Well, that's just what Dad said. I'm just saying what Dad said. They are a pair of randos. One is a buy-in, the other is half robber, half some filing cabinet guy, right? Roman has really proven himself to also be a vicious, opportunistic, racist monster at a bunch of different points in this season. So I think what has impressed me about the way they've handled that character is that he is a horrifying person. And in some ways... His ending isn't just optimistic for him. It's maybe optimistic for everybody else because maybe the most you can hope for with somebody like that is that they will go off and drink martinis and not be a menace to everybody else. <laughs> mm, yeah. And when I talk to people and I tell them about how I'm, you know, very into the show and I'm very, I was very excited for the finale and they're like, ah, oh, I just don't want to watch horrible people. And I'm like, okay, look. I get it. But at the same time, it's not just about these terrible people, but these terrible people who you kind of can relate to, not on a practical level or like a realistic level, but like on a emotional level. Um, my final question for you is, were there any resolutions or characters, uh, fates that you felt were most satisfying or most just like... Yeah, I'm glad that happened. You know, ultimately, Kendall's story to me, seeing how it ended, was perfect to me. You know, it he, it's not what he wanted, but I think it made the story. It started with his frustration, and it ended with him ultimately losing. And whether or not he can admit it, you know, we all know that he shouldn't have gotten that job. And he needs to find the courage to face the truth that everyone else in his family already has. And the last scene of him in the park reminded me of the last scene in The Godfather, where yes. Michael is kind of a lion in winter and just sitting back. And, you know, his whole life is kind of messed up. Got the same vibe. I felt the same way for him. That scene to me was just like, man, that's how this should have ended. Yes. Alas, he was not the king. Alas. <laughs> NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour crew, Eric Deggins, Aisha Harris, and Linda Holmes. To hear all their thoughts on Succession, listen to the podcast. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Meritive. Learn more at dynamedx.com. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate, at progressive.com. 
Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 60 degrees in Boston as All Things Considered continues at 5 o'clock. Overnight lows in the mid-40s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny but some patchy smoke around after about 11 a.m. because of fires in Nova Scotia. Highs tomorrow in the mid-60s. Sunny on Wednesday with temperatures in the upper 70s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Veterans Legacy Memorial is an online space with interactive pages for each veteran in its database so visitors can submit tributes. We want to broaden the experience of what you might typically see in a cemetery where a loved one has left flowers or a note. It's Monday, May 29th, Memorial Day. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in Fort Lisa Mullins. The new landmark deal to protect the Colorado River's water supply looks like a win for produce farmers in the Southwest. Knowing that we'll be okay for the next couple of years allows our growers to continue to do business without that extra stress. Meanwhile, a long-term solution remains far from certain. Also, you'll hear about the geopolitics of fentanyl and the opioid crisis, and you'll get a summer movie preview. It's 5.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. With the congressional vote on the debt ceiling bill looming this week, President Biden is expressing confidence despite criticism of the deal he cut with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I've spoken to a number of the members. I spoke to McConnell. I spoke to uh, a whole bunch of people. And it feels good. We'll see when the vote starts. President Biden spoke to reporters as he left the White House today. The Republican-led House is expected to vote on the deal that cuts government spending and averts a default on Wednesday. Biden says he expects the bill to clear Congress before the June 5th deadline, the date the Treasury Department says the government will run out of money to pay its bills. Both Biden and Speaker McCarthy are working to overcome opposition, though, from within their own parties. President Biden is honoring the sacrifice of generations of American troops who died fighting for their country as he marked Memorial Day at Arlington National Cemetery. NPR's Kristen Wright has more on today's tributes honoring fallen service members. Present! Present! President Biden, Vice President Harris, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin stood together solemnly at the tomb of the unknown soldier. The president laid a wreath to honor American service members who gave their lives for their country. He also reflected on the meaning of the day. Today, we once again gather in this sacred place at this solemn hour to honor fallen heroes. President Biden also spoke of his son, Army National Guard Major Bo Biden, who died from cancer eight years ago tomorrow. Kristen Wright, NPR News. 
Back to Capitol Hill now, where Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin is dialing up the Democratic-led effort to obtain information from Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow. For years, Crow provided undisclosed luxury vacations for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, including yacht and jet trips around the world, as NPR's Nina Totenberg reports. Crow refused to comply with a Judiciary Committee request for information, contending that the request was beyond Congress's authority. But in a six-page reply, Durbin cited longstanding court decisions giving Congress broad authority to get information needed for legislative purposes. And he specifically said that Crow has no legal right to refuse a request for information sent not to Crow as a private person, but to his yacht, jet, and luxury vacation facility facility, which are separate corporate entities. Durbin gave those companies until June 5th to comply. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. State police say several people have been questioned in connection with a pair of shootings in Revere yesterday. Investigations continue into the shootings near Revere Beach. Three victims, including two teenagers, suffered non-life-threatening injuries. Police say as of now, the two shootings do not appear to be related. No arrests have been made. The New England Aquarium has an exciting new addition. WBUR's Stevie Chapman reports the aquarium's African penguin colony hatched its first chick in four years. The chick hatched in March. Trainers still aren't sure if it's male or female. Penguin curator Kristen McMahon-Vanoss says they'll find out soon through a blood test, and that's when it will get a name. Pretty soon when the uh, chick loses its downy feathers, we're going to put them in what we call a swim tank, and then it'll go in the swim tank and kind of learn the ins and outs of swimming. The aquarium's African penguin breeding program was put on hold during the pandemic. Van Oss says continuing it is important because the species is endangered. This species really is in a state of decline. In 10 to 15 years, they could be extinct, which is pretty devastating. The penguin chick will likely make its public debut in July. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. Two Massachusetts fourth graders are competing in this year's Scripps National Spelling Bee, Adersh Venkanagari and Tanoshi Tanoshi of Alston joined more than 200 other school children in the spelling competition. At 9 and 10 years old, respectively, both Massachusetts representatives are among the youngest spellers in this year's event. The preliminary rounds begin tomorrow outside Washington, D.C. Celtics fans are hoping their team wins tonight at the Garden. East Boston resident Matt Spadafora didn't get tickets for tonight's game, but he'll be cheering on the Celtics just across the street from the Garden. I'm still going to be getting excited for this game, and I, I believe that they're going to win tonight. I believe that they're going to play strong with defense and offense uh, because tonight is a big night for Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah. If the Celtics beat the Heat this evening, they'll head to the NBA Finals. In the forecast, we're looking at starlit skies for tonight. Temperatures drop to the upper 40s. Sunny for tomorrow. Highs in the upper 60s. Right now, we have 63 degrees in Boston. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. We begin with the big development in international politics over the weekend. That's the re-election of Turkey's combative populist leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. His victory in a closely watched runoff has global consequences since Turkey's one of NATO's largest members. And after holding power already for 20 years and sometimes jailing his critics, Erdogan's win intensifies concerns about what was once considered a model democracy in the region. NPR's Fatma Tanis joins us now from Istanbul. Hey there. Hi. So first, can you just tell us how did Erdogan do this? A few weeks ago, it was really looking like he could lose. That's right. He's been criticized for a lot of the country's problems. The economy is in terrible shape and the government mismanaged the response to a deadly earthquakes in February. But Erdogan is still seen as a champion for many people who were neglected by previous governments, you know, working class, uh, conservative and religious voters. He promised to make Turkey a global power independent of foreign influence. And that's something that's really important to many Turks. And he also took advantage of his sweeping powers and government resources, mostly shut his opponent out of getting airtime uh, and blocked their campaign text messages. Okay, when you look at the situation, are there lessons that we can draw even beyond Turkey from how he campaigned? Certainly there are. Um, Erdogan used divisive language that we've seen in other places as well. He accused the opposition, for example, of being tied to terrorists and said that they would undermine the country's culture by allowing more LGBTQ rights. I spoke with Daron Ajemolu. He's an economist at MIT who follows Turkey and uh, co-authored the book Why Nations Fail. He said the strategy that Erdogan implemented has a lot in common with what the leaders of India and Hungary and also Donald Trump have all used. It polarizes, it uses nationalist feeling, it demonizes the opposition, it leverages misinformation. And he says the worst news out of Turkey, in his opinion, is that it showed this strategy is still very potent. Okay, and Fatma, what does this tell us about the future of Turkey as a democracy? So analysts note that Erdogan already has a solid hold on the judiciary, the bureaucracy, the media, and he's also jailed some of his opponents, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, But on the other side, we saw that the election really energized energized people's commitment to democracy. There was a really high voter turnout, um, 84% this round. Yesterday, I was at a polling station in Istanbul, um, and I met two young women who had just voted in their first elections and were also volunteering as poll monitors. Uh, both supported the opposition, but said they were determined to keep democracy alive no matter the outcome. Also, rights groups and activists uh, have said that they would step up their work uh, to protect minorities and, civil, uh, and civic rights. Okay, and what about Turkey's pivotal role in the world? What does this all mean for that? Well, we can continue to expect to see Erdogan walking a fine line between East and West. He provides weapons to Ukraine and also helped ensure that vital Ukrainian grain gets shipped out and feeds many around the world. Uh, This is something that's important to NATO and the U.S., But Turkey does not impose Western sanctions on Russia, and Erdogan has maintained close ties with Russian President Vladimir Putin. He's blocked Sweden's entry to NATO, which the U.S. sees as important uh, to counter Russia. Mm -hmm. But some analysts think he might soften his stance on that uh, now that he's reelected. Today, President Biden called Erdogan and congratulated him on his reelection. The two leaders agreed to deepen cooperation um, uh, between the two countries. That's NPR's Fatma Tanis. Thank you. Thank you. 
For many Americans, Memorial Day includes a visit to a cemetery honoring their loved ones who died while serving in the military. But visiting a physical space isn't possible for everyone. Enter the Veterans Legacy Memorial. It is an online memorial for millions of deceased U.S. veterans buried in national cemeteries. It launched in 2019. The Veterans Legacy Memorial features an interactive page for every veteran in its database. That means anyone who visits the site can submit a tribute, add biographical information, even photos. This year, the memorial has added 27 new cemeteries to its database, including Arlington National Cemetery. James LaPaglia of the Department of Veterans Affairs helps manage the memorial and joins us now. Welcome. Thank you, Juana. It's great to be here. So, James, what is the goal of this project? What experiences, what feelings are you hoping people experience when they use this website? We want to broaden the experience of what you might typically see in a cemetery where a loved one has left flowers or a note or is standing there talking to their loved ones. And it broadens that experience to a worldwide audience, to those who can contribute to and appreciate the stories of those patriots who we've loved and lost. Tell us a little bit more about the kinds of data that the Veterans Legacy Memorial is making accessible to people. Uh, We just went over 60,000 memories shared to veteran pages. Wow. And, you know, we see grief. We sometimes see very raw grief, Uh, but we also see laughter. Uh, We see storytelling. I I did this little search on the back end last week about, you know, what are the other topics that are being mentioned? And, you know, I found tributes and content that reference things like PTSD, veteran suicide, disability, uh, serving under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, burn pits, Agent Orange, the health care that veterans receive from VA medical centers, racism experiences while the service member was in the military and and more. So it really, VLM, what we're finding, it shows really that intersection of the veteran experience. I spent a little bit of time on this website. The biggest thing that struck me is I live in Maryland and multiple members of my family that served in the Army are buried in Leavenworth in Kansas. The idea of being able to have that experience, have that digital connection while being halfway across the country must be really powerful for people. I think it is very powerful. You know, we intentionally escalated our ability to make the site interactive in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. And that was largely because we weren't gathering, of course, in large numbers for Memorial Day ceremonies. And so we did it intentionally because we still wanted people to have the ability to memorialize their their veteran. And that still holds true today. You know, the power of VLM for people to share the history and the story of their veteran's life, no matter where they are. I mean, there's so much incredible data. There are so many incredible stories on this site. Are there any that stand out to you? Um, You know, while we have 4.8 million veteran pages, each page is special to someone. But this one page that that I want to try to describe to your listeners really describes the power of ELM. Robert Monroe, he was a Vietnam combat Marine. He died in 2021. And he's interred at Riverside National Cemetery in Southern California. Now, Bob's wife, Linda, has created and continues to create just a masterpiece of Bob's military and his personal life on his VLM page. Not only has she gotten into the box of military memorabilia and photos and scrapbooks to upload almost 200 items to his page, but she's on Bob's page frequently, and she has this running conversation with him about things from the past and and things that are going on currently in, in her life. It's really a love story that not only helps her stay connected to him, but also shows others her amazing Marine husband, who was a father, grandfather, and how important he was to the others around him and the life they shared together 
We are talking on the occasion of Memorial Day, but this website's available every day for people, for everyone to use. I am curious, how would you suggest people who may not know any veterans have any in their family or in their life interact with this website? You know, not all veterans are in VLM yet. We, we do have a way to go. We're not done. We know there's millions of veterans laid to rest at private cemeteries. Their remains may be in an urn on someone's mantle right? Or their uh, remains may have been scattered somewhere or they were buried at sea. So, you know, our goal eventually is to have a page for every veteran. But right now, people may not be able to find the veteran that they're connected with. But even if you can, this is an opportunity to maybe find a veteran who is laid to rest in a cemetery near you. Just look around for someone that might have that local connection. Um, and then it could be just something simple, you know, th saying thank you for your service and, and a comment on their page. What a great call to action. James LaPaglia is a digital services officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Thank you so much. Thanks, Juana. Here's the story of a lovely lady. If you're in Studio City, California, and in the market to own a piece of television history, stop by 11222 Dilling Street. It's a story of a man named Brady who was busy with three boys of his own. If that iconic theme song didn't clue you in, we are talking about the home of one of television's most famous blended families, the Brady Bunch. What a marvelous house you have here, Miss Brady. For about five and a half million dollars, you can own the house where the toughest problems were solved by kind parents, a helpful housekeeper, or an older sibling in about a half hour, give or take commercial breaks. Many of those dilemmas played out in Dad Mike's office. You know, the brownish room, architect's drafting table in the corner where middle sister Jan confessed that she'd had enough of her big sister. Well, all I hear all day long at school is how great Marsha is at this or how wonderful Marsha did that. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Many real estate agents will tell you it's bathrooms and kitchens that sell a house. This house has the famous Jack and Jill bathroom that the three girls and three boys mostly shared. Cindy's at it again. She's been in there for an hour. When you're a TV star, your hair has to be just right. The Brady kitchen, decorated in peak 70s colors of avocado green and bright orange, was most often occupied by housekeeper Alice and Mom Carol. Hey, Mom. Hi, Alice. Wash for dinner. Pork chops. Pork chops. Huh? What else? Applesauce? Pork chops. And applesauce. And of course, that floating staircase that the kids stomped up, took pictures on, and in one instance lost control of a basketball on. Oh, no. Mom's favorite vase. She always says, don't play ball in the house. HGTV purchased the house in 2018, and with two other star siblings, the Property Brothers, remodeled it to look exactly like the show's set. Just know if we get any of this wrong, we will be put out to dry because yeah, all of America will know exactly what this house is supposed to look like. Right. Let's get in there. Let's Judging from the online like, listing, at least, the brothers got it right. No word yet on whether there's a buyer. Think I'll go for a walk outside now. The summer sun's calling my name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. On this Memorial Day, I'm Josie Guarino. The time is 518. Coming up on WBUR, Bob Mondello's big summer movie preview and a tour of Los Angeles' top makeout spots. Keep listening.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center with the musical adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer-winning classic, The Color Purple, now through June 4th, theumbrellaarts.org. Remember, your inbox is another easy way to follow the news from WBUR. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today is a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animals in need by donating to animal welfare organizations, rehabilitation farms, wildlife centers, and nonprofit rescue organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. In sports, the Celtics are looking to make history tonight in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. If the Seas beat the Miami Heat tonight, then they would become the first NBA team ever to win a playoff series after losing for the first three games. Tip-off is at 8.30. In the forecast, we're looking at starlit skies for tonight. Temperatures will drop into the upper 40s. Sunny for tomorrow. Highs in the upper 60s. Wednesday, bright skies warming up to 80 degrees. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Los Angeles, where I live, is a car-obsessed city. And that means parking is a way of life here. And I'm talking about parking in both senses of the word, people, if you catch my drift. Parking, not just as in where you leave your car, but parking as in where you would not leave your car at all. So how would you do this? I mean, I think I'd put my arm across the seat over and like in the movie theaters, kind of envelop you. Yeah? Yeah. Are you feeling it? I'm kind of feeling it. Yeah? Yeah. A vibe? Mm -hmm. I'm feeling 16 years old again. (laughs) I am cozying up with Pat Morrison in the backseat of a Mazda SUV. She is a longtime Angelino and L.A. Times columnist. And today, she is our tour guide to some of the city's top makeout spots. And the number one makeout spot in L.A., according to Yelp, yes, they actually rate these, is this turnoff on Mulholland Drive. But like if you and I were canoodling right now in the back seat, kind of gazing out. Yeah, we would the see windshield. the lights of downtown Los Angeles. We would see the lights of Hollywood. There's the Capitol Records building, for goodness sake. And so you get that great magical vibe already. Now, before we get any further, I should say that while this story is about romance inside cars, it's also about L.A.'s love affair with cars. Because these makeout spots offer a vantage point into the city's century-long sprawl. This city's obsession with the automobile drove its development. This is a story that stretches back to the 1920s, when Mulholland Drive was just being carved into the Hollywood Hills, long before it would star in films like David Lynch's 2001 movie, named after the road itself. Yes? May I help you? Someone is in trouble. 
In some sense, Mulholland Drive embodied the ambitions of the city a century ago, a road that was meant to showcase the real estate potential perched in the Hollywood Hills. Los Angeles, 120-some years ago, was a big place that was still a small town. But every hillside, every mountain was an opportunity to sell real estate. Ah. And so you had developers who said, if we put this highway at this elevated spot, so beautiful, the views on both sides, we're going to sell real estate. Oh, so it was just a conveyor belt to get real estate clients. You know, what is this town about? It's about oil, aviation, and real estate. Totally. And Hollywood. (laughs) And as roads like Mulholland sprung up, car culture went wild. During the 1920s, the number of cars registered in L.A. County alone multiplied fivefold. So how did car culture change how people interacted with each other? I mean, what I'm thinking is a car, it finally meant privacy, right? You didn't have to sneak a kiss in the parlor room anymore. I I have to say, the privacy to go courting, you read the newspapers of the teens and 20s and they're full of sermons about the sin of the automobile. And when you read accounts of Los Angeles at the turn of the century and the years beyond, you can see how the car was such a natural partner for Los Angeles. A natural partner for Hollywood, too. The car meant Hollywood could deliver its products straight to drivers. All right, Pat, where are we heading to next? You're our tour guide. We're going to the movies. Woohoo! <laughs> we are going to the site of the second drive in in the United States, the first in California. So car culture came together with the movie culture to make the perfect evening in Los Angeles. That first drive-in theater to open in California was simply called the Drive-In Theater. It opened in 1934, cost a quarter for adults, 10 cents for children, and screened films like Grace Moore's One Night of Love. Now, this drive-in, which was at the corner of Pico and Westwood Boulevards, is long gone. In its place is an old shopping mall, partly converted into Google offices. But, you know, back in the 1930s, if Yelp had existed, the drive-in theater probably would have claimed its title as the number one makeout spot in all of L.A. You know, what I love is that for so many people, the point of coming to a drive-in movie theater was not to watch the movie, right? No, although you had to be able to outline the plot when you got home and your mother asked about it. (laughs) But in the meantime, while the movie was playing, what was going on? Well, if you were there with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you were having maybe a little steamy time. It was kind of cheesy, but it was fun, and it was a rite of passage, I think. And you wouldn't just see drive-in theaters. I mean, you would see drive-in restaurants, drive-in churches. Drive-in restaurants were so Los Angeles, with the car hops, some of them coming out on roller skates. We saw movies like American Graffiti that extolled all of this. The car racing, the movement, the sense that to be an adult was to drive, to have a car. Wow, he's really fast, isn't he? Yeah, but he's stupid. But in car-centric Los Angeles, even a form of entertainment centered around the car itself, like this drive-in, couldn't survive the development that automobiles enabled. Cars and all the new freeways to drive on allowed new suburbs to pop up, and suburban malls, which led to the demise of the drive-in. And 
All that urban sprawl, that endless quilt of development, that, that is the panoramic backdrop of the last makeout spot on our tour. Okay, wait, but really, like, if this is the number two makeout spot on Yelp, where are people making out? I don't know. The parking lot is not very inviting, and all of this is very beautiful, but... But a short walk from the car is a spellbinding view, all the way from the Pacific Ocean to downtown L.A. and beyond. And right now, this park at the top of Baldwin Hills, it's bursting with yellow, yellow daisies, yellow mustard, as far as the eye can see. It was one of those areas that was sort of a howling coyote wilderness that nobody really wanted to bother about Mm. until, once again, real estate got valuable. People had cars so they could drive to places that had been inaccessible before. And the views mattered. Once again, developers started saying, hey, are we missing a bet? Let's go build some houses up there. So much about what we've been talking about today, Pat, has been about the magic that cars have brought to this city. The magic that allowed people to explore the city, to live in different neighborhoods that they would have never dreamed of living in if they hadn't had cars. But do you think in the process, because of the city's devotion to car culture, that some other kind of magic might have been lost? We've lost the magic of having a commonality, of having a presence on the sidewalks and in public spaces with people who aren't us and who aren't like us. And a car culture is a classist culture in a way. Even though it demands that people have it to function here in Los Angeles, it creates class and it creates isolation. And I think that's been to Los Angeles' detriment. The car has helped the city to grow physically, But socially, culturally, maybe not so much. But even in a city built to the scale of the automobile, there are still plenty of spots like these hills where the pavement comes to an end and you have to get out of your car to truly connect with this place. This is NPR News. You're with 90.9 WBUR on this Memorial Day. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. The time is just about 5.30. Coming up next on WBUR, Celtics look for an historic playoff, plus Bob Mondello's big summer movie preview. That's all coming up in about 10 minutes on 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, we're looking at clear skies tonight. Temperatures drop into the upper 40s, sunny for tomorrow, upper 60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Hone your business skills at the school ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Build your success story at babson.edu success. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ceremonies and parades were held around the country this Memorial Day when America honors those service members who lost their lives protecting this country. In Chicago, people gathered at the General John Logan Memorial. Mayor Brandon Johnston. This nation did not flinch or fold when there were those who wanted to divide us and that the ultimate sacrifice of those who paid the price for our liberation, I will always be grateful. President Biden marked the day with a traditional wreath laying at Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. He stood for a moment in front of the wreath and bowed his head in prayer. His administration has overseen a time of relative peace for the U.S. military after two decades of war in Afghanistan and Iraq. An investigation is underway to determine what caused an apartment building to collapse in Davenport, Iowa, Sunday. Herb Tricks of member station WVIK reports the rescue phase of the response is winding down after rescue crews worked through the night. Paul Stevenson was visiting a friend in the Davenport apartments when he says it blew up. Like a bomb. That's what it sounded like to me. It was like it was an explosion. You know, people say they heard different type of thing, but everything came right there. He and his friend were able to get to safety while firefighters had to rescue other residents. One person was pulled from the rubble and hospitalized. City officials said they had received complaints from residents about needed repairs. Work was being done on the building's exterior at the time of the collapse. Authorities say the building will be demolished. For NPR News, I'm Herb Trix in Davenport, Iowa. Wall Street was closed today in honor of Memorial Day. On Friday, stocks rallied with the Nasdaq notching its fifth straight week of wins. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. A law allowing members of the armed services to access mental health treatment without going through their chain of command is now in effect. The Brandon Act was authored by Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton. It was approved in 2018, but it was not implemented by the U.S. Department of Defense until this month. Moulton says he was frustrated by the delay, but says the law will save lives. It's taken the services far too long to figure out the logistics of how to make this work, but the bottom line is that it's now available to everyone on active duty, and I know it's going to save a lot of lives. The Brandon Act is named after Brandon Caserta, a member of the U.S. Navy who died by suicide in 2018. Moulton says anyone suffering from mental health issues can also dial 988, the National Mental Health Hotline. A portion of Deer Island is closed to the public until further notice because of a damaged wind turbine on the southern part of the island. Video footage appears to show debris flying off the turbine while the blades continue to rotate in the wind. Deer Island is home to two wind turbines along with the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority's wastewater treatments plant. The area also features walking trails and picnic spaces. The authority says nobody was hurt. Well, fans are gathering outside TD Garden ahead of tonight's Celtics game. Let's go, Celtics! Just about three hours from now, Boston takes on Miami in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. The winner heads to the NBA Finals against the Denver Nuggets. Norton resident Joe Frenny says he has faith the Celtics can make it. Oh, I think Celtics in 7 for sure. I think it's going to be close, but I think the Celtics can can do it with the uh, the rabid fan base that we have here. I don't think there's any any way that we lose. 
And if the Celtics win tonight, Boston will be the first team in NBA history to win a seven-game series after losing the first three games. In the forecast, we're looking at clear skies for tonight, temperatures in the low 40s, another sunny day in store for tomorrow, highs in the upper 60s. Wednesday, bright skies warming up to 80 degrees. And you you may need the A.C. or fans going for Thursday, a sun-filled day with a high of about 88 degrees inland, a bit cooler along the coast. Tonight's sunset is at 8.11. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox, with season two of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. In 2022, nearly 110,000 Americans died from drug overdose, according to preliminary data from the CDC. That's an average of about 300 people per day. As the opioid crisis escalates, the U.S. continues to grapple with solutions on how to combat it. One expert argues that this public health crisis also has geopolitical roots. That expert joins me now. Vonda Felbob-Brown is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. So we know that pharmaceutical companies are the main driver of the opioid crisis. Their complicity is the subject of a number of lawsuits and news reporting that we don't have time to get into here. But you argue that this crisis can also be considered a geopolitical issue. Can you just explain that point to us briefly? So the opioid crisis started with pharmaceutical companies in the 1990s making fallacious claims about the lack of addictive qualities of pharmaceutical palliatives like oxycodone. But since that moment, a lot has changed in terms of U.S. domestic regulation and a lot has changed in the U.S. drug markets. Specifically, starting about 2013, fentanyl at the time produced in China started entering the U.S. market. As a result of actions of the U.S. government that persuaded the government of China to schedule fentanyl plus drugs, the market has changed to firms, uh, traders, dealers, brokers in China producing and selling precursor chemicals to Mexican cartels that are then producing fentanyl in Mexico and shipping it to the United States. The traffickers themselves have taken it upon themselves to mix fentanyl into all kinds of substances. Many of the drugs we're talking about are being trafficked by non-state actors like cartels and other criminal networks. And you wrote in your piece about how drug producers can easily tweak their recipes whenever a particular substance is banned or restricted. So practically speaking, what are one or two things that can be done to deal with the fentanyl that is coming into the United States? Trying to resurrect cooperation with China and Mexico is important. We have more or less exhausted soft approach with Mexico. Perhaps it is an important time right now to start thinking about other measures. 
increasing inspections at the U.S.-Mexico border, even if this will have economic consequences for Mexico, also for the United States. After all, putting aside the immense human cost of the fentanyl epidemic, the economic cost is over a trillion dollars and uh, growing worse. Second, we should not shy away from indicting Chinese and Mexican officials and businessmen that are complicit either in the illegal trade or in subverting cooperation. You've made the case that tackling this issue as a geopolitical one is going to require a shift in mindset. But I want to ask you, do you really think that's possible? Lawmakers in the United States can't agree on much of anything lately, let alone how to deal with very complicated geopolitics. The change that should happen is how we respond with respect to law enforcement, namely to get away from simply thinking of the cartels as movers of illegal contraband, illegal drugs, and really tackling every single dimension of economic and political activity in which they are involved. Is it easy politics? Absolutely not. But there are the dimensions that don't require complex politics, such as the expanded anti-organized crime task forces featuring a much wider set of agencies, adopting a whole-of-government approach, that breaks down the stovepiping around countering criminal groups that is still very much present in the Department of Defense, the Department of State and Homeland Security. Vonda Felbaugh-Brown is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Her piece, Why America is Struggling to Stop the Fentanyl Epidemic, the New Geopolitics of Synthetic Opioids, is in Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. People who rely on the shrinking Colorado River are still assessing the consequences of a landmark deal that the Biden administration says will avert a major crisis. It looks like a win for produce farmers in the Southwest, but some experts say no one should be celebrating. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. About 90 percent of North America's winter produce is grown along a sun-scorched stretch of the Colorado River on the California-Arizona border. Up to 2,000 refrigerated semi-trucks a day can leave Yuma's cooler row bound for Safeway, Costco, Subway with leafy greens. And there must be like 30, maybe 40 huge semi-trucks at this intersection alone uh, by the Dole Packing Company. This is a huge part of the national food system dependent wholly on the Colorado River. So farmers here were relieved to learn about a deal struck by the lower basin states of California, Arizona, and Nevada to keep 3 million acre feet of water in the river for the next three years. So at least here in Yuma, it's mostly status quo. Farmers won't be getting a mandatory across-the-board cut to their water. Attorney Megan Scott's family has farmed here for three generations. You know, knowing that we'll be okay for the next couple of years allows our growers to kind of continue to do business without that extra stress. Farmers had been worried they'd lose 20 percent or more of their water and right in the middle of growing season. Scott says the deal brings some economic certainty and more time to negotiate. The other sense of relief comes from let's get through this lower basin plan, you know, flush those things out, get everything in place so that we can start to have the hard conversations that are going to be necessary. Across the Southwest, though, some farmers are going to fallow some of their fields, and the federal government is paying them a lot under this three-year deal to not plant crops. Jack Schmidt runs Utah State University's Center for Colorado River Studies. It is hard to imagine that agriculture would have ever been willing to make these cuts 
in the absence of this massive amount of federal money being delivered to agricultural districts to fallow those fields. This is temporary aid money, about $1.2 billion coming out of the recent infrastructure and inflation reduction laws, and no one expects it to be renewed. It's also unlikely the West will have another unusually snowy winter like this last one, which has bought some time. Schmidt says the celebrations come with an asterisk. Everyone is so relieved that the states made any agreement at all and didn't go to court, and we should celebrate it, but we should temper this. Experts say the deal is just a stopgap. Cutting just 3 million acre feet of water won't be enough to save the Colorado River long term. But Katherine Sorensen at Arizona State University's Kyle Center for Water Policy says it's at least a start. I'm optimistic that these conversations will continue in good faith. And the conversations about what happens after 2026 in particular will be very, very difficult. But look, failure is just not an option. Failure is not an option, because even if you don't factor in climate change, the shrinking Colorado River is already over-promised to agribusiness, hydropower producers, and some of the nation's fastest-growing cities. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Phoenix. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In the new album, Ketramine, we hear a seamless collaboration between artists Ketranada and Amine. It's a funky summer album that brings out the best in both artists. NPR music contributor Jordan Coley sees their partnership as destiny and has this review. The thing about Ketranada's music is as good as it is and as bouncy as it is, it always is sort of taken to the next level when he has someone who knows how to string a good melody together and to rap and sing rhythmically over his beats. And I think Amine is like the perfect counterpart because of that. That, of course, is a Forever, which is the lead single from the record. I think something that I've noticed in Emine's sort of progression as a pop musician in the last 10 years is that he really has had a marked improvement in his vocal technique. He's known for his sort of staccato burst and of course his penchant for a really beautiful and catchy hook is something that he's always had. Ketranada has a couple of sonic calling cards that I like to call his extraterrestrial synth that he likes to use. A synthesizer that is meant to resemble actually uh, a Neptune's style synth that uh, Frell and Chad Hugo would have used in the early 2000s. Yeah. 
She called me on my phone, asked me what I'm sipping on. Look. Louis in my cup, cup. Louis on my clothes, clothes. Louis smoking Gabagoo, we passed that pick and roll. This one is k It's the last song on the album. It's sort of the triumphant closer to the record. I love a song that feels triumphant and uh, sort of like, we're here, we've arrived. And so I think I love this song because I feel like it does just that. And also it's reminiscent to me of uh, classic sort of hip hop album closers of your sounds like a Jay-Z, you know, a peak Jay-Z song to me. I don't know who you are. Be say nothing no more. Can be delusional thinking we close but we fall. And there's a line, uh, the chorus is uh, you can't be your true self while seeking validation. Can't be your true self while seeking validation. Gotta learn and let go, that's infatuation. I said can't be your true self while seeking validation. I like that line and it felt appropriate because I think for a, a bit of their careers, Keitronada and Amine sort of slotted themselves as outsiders, you know, but both of them seem to have sort of shrugged that off a little bit. And I think you hear it on this album. You hear sort of a confidence and a self-assuredness that exudes throughout the whole record. And I, I love this song because I feel like it's the apotheosis of them saying that we're here and we deserve to be here. And in fact, you guys are welcome to join us if you want to have some fun. That was NPR Music contributor Jordan Coley. Katranada and Amine's joint album, Katramine, is out now. Leases on your chain, leases on your chain, your ego got... This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Josie Guarino. The time is 5.48. Coming up next on WBUR, it's Bob Mandelo's Big Summer Movie Preview. Stay with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Our forecast is calling for clear skies for tonight. Temperatures in the upper 40s. Another sunny day tomorrow. Highs in the upper 60s. Wednesday, bright skies warming up to the 80s. And you may need the AC on, though, for Thursday. A sun-filled day with a high of 88 inland, a bit cooler along the coast. The sun sets tonight at 8:11. Right now, we have 62 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Hurricane Ian killed 150 people. The storm that ravaged part of South Florida last fall could have been even more deadly if not for advances in forecasting. But many people in the path underestimated the storm surge. You've got to stop focusing on the wrong things. What scientists are looking out for at the start of another hurricane season. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. This weekend is the start of the summer movie season with Disney's Little Mermaid leading the charge. Studios raced to finish summer attractions before the writers strike so that Hot Weather Fair could open through Labor Day. That means a whole lot of films, so we asked critic Bob Mondello for a selective preview. 
The world is in such peril these days from war, climate change, superhero mistakes. I completely broke the universe. That it's reassuring to know Hollywood has us covered. The Flash may have messed up time in a way that promises the total destruction of humanity, but to put things right, he has allies, starting with his own double. You stole my face. A Dark Knight, played by Ben Affleck. Any scars we have make us who we are. A Less Dark Knight, played by Michael Keaton. Lots of help. And a super somebody by the name of Kent. It's not Clark. My name is Kara. Once you've fractured the universe, everything's up for grabs, evidently. That's something that going into the Spider-Verse taught an animated super kid. My name is Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. This time he's headed across the Spider-Verse. So wait a minute, there's an elite crew with all the best Spider-People in it? In six different styles of animation, but his problem's the same as the Flashes. You have a choice between saving one person and saving every world. Actually, things don't get much simpler, even if there's just one world, as in Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Unicron is coming. How big can this guy be? Uh, he eats planets, so like way bigger than a planet. A world where the planet barely survives is depicted in the odd couple dramedy Biosphere, in which a nameless catastrophe has left Sterling K. Brown and Mark Duplass living in a geodesic dome, the last two men on Earth. Ray, get out here, please. I'm doing some research. Oh, wow. This really is the end of the world. Jokes aside, the idea that humans might destroy humanity is hardly new, either in movies or real life. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer chronicles the development of the atom bomb by scientists who weren't entirely sure in the 1940s what would happen when they exploded the first one. Might it start a chain reaction? Set the atmosphere on fire? Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. Other biopics this summer deal with earth-shattering questions, often with well-matched pairs of actors, including Liev Schreiber and Helen Mirren as Henry Kissinger and Golda Meir in Golda. We cannot allow 30,000 men to die of thirst. We'll send them water when we've got our prisoners back. And Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! In Barbie, the comic collectibles biopic that will have the world seeing hot pink. I thought I might stay over tonight. Why? Because we're girlfriend, boyfriend. To do what? I'm actually not sure. In that respect, he's a lot like the introverted 19-year-old in another comedy called No Hard Feelings, whose parents hire Jennifer Lawrence to date him to bring him out of his shell. So when you say date him, do you mean date him or date him? Yes. Date him. Date him hard. Okay. I'll date his brains out. No Hard Feelings is raunchy, and so is Strays, a gag fest in which Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx play talking, or rather swearing, dogs. I'm gonna bite his off. Oh, we gonna up. Far more innocent are the middle schoolers in the mockumentary theater camp. These are kids who were always picked last in gym. They know their way around musical comedy, but will that be enough? Welcome, auditioners. You guys are so talented, so unbelievable. This will break you. This will fully destroy you. Congratulations on being the most talented kids at camp. A camp for junior astronomers is the jumping-off point for Wes Anderson's latest weirdness, Asteroid City. The star-studded film pictures a 1955 convention of stargazers who suspect they have aliens in their midst. Sometimes I think I feel more at home outside the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, wow. Me too. Looking every bit as eccentric as Asteroid City, an immigration comedy from Los Espookies' Julio Torres called Problemista. 
You have a month to find someone to co-sign your visa. And if you don't, you have to leave the U.S. Enter Tilda Swinton. I'm late. I, I know I'm late. I'm so late. I just... Oh, this menu. What is it with walnuts? Walnuts, walnuts, walnuts. It's like a cafe for squirrel. You think this lady can sponsor you? I, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. There's also Final Cut, about a French film crew that's making a zombie movie when they're attacked by actual zombies, Joyride, about four Asian-American women's misadventures in China, and The Blackening, about college pals whose Cabin in the Woods fun and games reunion turns out to be the setup for a real-life horror movie. In your predicament, the black character is always the first to die. I will spare your lives if you sacrifice the person you deem the blackest. The blackest? You have two minutes to decide. Clifton! Yeah! That can prove not the blackest. Prove it. I voted for Trump. <gasps> what? what? Twice. More conventional horror films include The Boogeyman, based on a story by Stephen King, a return of a huge prehistoric shark in The Meg 2, Disney's latest theme park ride-turned-movie Haunted Mansion, and the unexpected passenger drama The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Evil is immortal. Powerful evil. We call him Dracula. Horror not your thing? Well, how about the relationship dramas that wowed Film Fest audiences this year? The Prisoner's Daughter, about a woman who's wary of reconnecting with her dying, just-out-of-jail father. I'll do it on one condition. You pay me rent. Oh my God, you're still so beautiful. You're a tenant. That's it. Also, Earth Mama, about a pregnant single mom determined to keep her kids. Passages, about a gay couple whose marriage is tested when one of them has an affair with a woman. Blue Jean, about a closeted gym instructor in Maggie Thatcher's England. And Past Lives, about consequences when a Korean immigrant reconnects with her first crush 20 years later. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. I think I just missed him. Did he miss you? That is the big question. What about for kids? Well, remember how Pixar brought emotions to life in Inside Out? Now it's doing the same thing for air, earth, fire, and water in Elemental, when a go-with-the-flow guy named Wade falls for an incendiary gal named Ember. So you've never left Firetown? Sorry, buddy. Elements don't mix. Hey! Plus, my dad would boil you alive. Also for kids, Mutant Mayhem from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Gran Turismo, where a teen gamer gets behind the wheel of a real race car, and Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, a cartoon about a sea monster in high school. I have laser eyes? Yes, they do pack a wallop. Hopefully packing a wallop for parents and grandparents, familiar faces that have been around for a while, a devout Maggie Smith in The Miracle Club. Welcome to Lourdes. <laughs> Denzel Washington encountering the mafia in Equalizer 3. Whatever it is you and your friends do, do it somewhere else. Tom Cruise doing his own stunts in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. And bullwhip snapping archaeologist Harrison Ford, who's searching for the title Gizmo in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I've been looking for this all my life. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. Ah, yes, capitalism. The thing Hollywood builds its summers around before getting all serious in the fall with awards contenders. I'm Bob Mondello. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from HBO. 
Sydney Sweeney stars in the new HBO original film Reality, based on the story of Reality Winner, who went from working for the NSA to being interrogated by the FBI. Premieres tonight at 10 p.m. on Max. From Plymouth Gin Distillery, Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. Thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. It's a minute before 6 o'clock. Next on WBUR, details of the debt ceiling deal. Stay with us. In the forecast, we're looking at starlit skies tonight, temperatures in the upper 40s. Another sunny day for tomorrow, highs in the upper 60s. Wednesday, bright skies warming up to 80. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village, opening June 7th with the Fats Waller musical Ain't Misbehavin'. After that, it's Jersey Boys and more. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden and Republican House Speaker McCarthy have reached a deal on the debt ceiling. The agreement prevents the worst possible crisis, a default for the first time in our nation's history. It's Monday, May 29th, Memorial Day. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, you'll get the story on what's next for French citizens who've been protesting the pension reforms rammed through by President Emmanuel Macron. Also, activists are calling for wealthy countries and investment institutions to address Vietnam's human rights record before providing funds to the country to address climate change. And you'll hear about the actor Gary Sinise about playing music for veterans. And then at 6.30, it's Marketplace. It's 6.01. The news is next. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden says there's no reason why Congress can't meet the June 5th debt ceiling deadline. I'm confident that we'll get a vote in both houses, and we'll see. The Republican-led House is expected to vote on the agreement on Wednesday amid some opposition from both hardline uh, Democrats and hardline Republicans. The deal also taking criticism from housing advocates who say tens of thousands of people could lose rental subsidies. NPR Center for Ludden reports that housing is among many programs that face funding limits for at least two years. A hot housing market has seen rents skyrocket year after year, a key driver of inflation. To keep up with that, housing advocates say billions of dollars more are needed just to maintain current rental subsidies. They already fall way short of need. Only one in four people who qualify for rental aid actually gets it. Congress must still work out exact spending details, but the concern is that limits could lead to more evictions and homelessness. The debt ceiling bill also revokes unspent pandemic housing aid, but it exempts emergency rental assistance and emergency housing vouchers to prevent homelessness. 
Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. Overseas, Russia says it struck Ukrainian air bases with precision long-range missiles. NPR's Charles Maines is in Moscow. Russia's defense ministry said the airstrikes successfully targeted Ukrainian military communication systems, aviation, and a munition storage facility. The claims were partially confirmed by Ukraine, which admitted Russian missiles had damaged a military runway and at least five aircraft in Helmynitsky, about 200 miles southwest of Kiev. Yet Ukrainian officials said air defense Defense systems intercepted the majority of incoming Russian fire, most of it directed at Kiev, and two waves of mass drone and airstrikes overnight and again late morning. Russia has intensified attacks in the build-up to Ukrainian counteroffensive that some Western analysts say has already begun with an uptick in Ukrainian cross-border strikes on Russian infrastructure in recent days. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. President Biden calling Uganda's tough new anti-gay law shameful and a tragic violation of universal human rights. As NPR's Jackie Northam reports. Ugandan President Yaweri Museveni signed the bill despite widespread condemnation from many Western governments and human rights activists. Same-sex relations were already illegal in the religiously conservative East African nation, but the new law levies harsher penalties for LGBTQ people. It calls for the death penalty for same-sex relations involving vulnerable people. Ugandans who engage in gay sex can receive life imprisonment, while anyone who attempts to have same-sex relations can face 10 years in prison. President Biden suggested the new law could impact U.S. assistance and investment for Uganda. Jackie Northam, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu spent part of Memorial Day remembering the city's fallen veterans. Earlier today, she attended ceremonies at the Garden Ceremony Cemetery, that is, in West Roxbury, and Cedar Grove Cemetery in Dorchester. The mayor also took part in observances in Brighton at the Boston Police Veterans of Foreign Wars Post 1018 and with the Puerto Rican Veterans Association. Memorial Day is often considered the unofficial start to summer, and there's optimism in the Berkshires that this summer will be a good one for tourism. Jonathan Butler is with the Economic and Tourism Development Agency, One Berkshire. He says numbers are trending up for lodging and at arts venues. But Butler says while staffing levels are better than last year, problems persist. So that seasonal workforce has always been a big part of the Berkshire visitor economy and utilized by lots of our properties, you know, in the hospitality realm, in the cultural realm, um, in, in the outdoor realm. But it's definitely been a little bit slower to bounce back coming out of the pandemic. He, he adds that a bump in tourism during the pandemic has brought a younger group of visitors to the Berkshires than in past years. One person is recovering and about a dozen others are temporarily homeless after an overnight fire in Dorchester. Firefighters responded to the blaze at a triple-decker on Adams Street at around midnight. They say two people had to be rescued from the third floor. One had to be taken to the hospital. The cause of the fire remains under investigation. Damage is estimated at a half a million dollars. The Boston Celtics are on the brink of history and may return to the NBA Finals for the second year in a row. They host the Miami Heat tonight in a decisive Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. WBUR's Fausto Menard has a preview. The Celtics needed a miraculous buzzer-beating shot to win Game 6 Saturday night in Miami. 
If they win tonight at the Garden, the Seas will become the first team in NBA history, that's 151 tries, to win a seven-game series after losing the first three. Miami and Boston have met in the conference finals in three of the past four years. Last year, the Celtics prevailed, winning Game 7 in Miami. Tip-off tonight is at 8.30. The winner advances to the NBA Finals to play the Denver Nuggets for the league championship. That series starts Thursday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The forecast is calling for another sunny day for tomorrow, upper 60s, Wednesday bright skies, warming up to 80 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. On this Memorial Day, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. The promise of averting on a default on the nation's debt is now more within reach than it has been for months. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy finalized a deal to raise the nation's borrowing authority. And the president said last night this avoids a default. And the agreement also represents a compromise, which means no one got everything they want. But that's the responsibility of governing. The House will vote midweek, but the deal is being panned by some conservatives and some progressives. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us from the Capitol to talk about next steps. Hey there. Hey, Juana. So, Deirdre, first, let's start with the basics. What's in this deal? So it lifts the debt ceiling for two years, most notably past the 2024 presidential election. The deal includes spending caps for non-defense programs for the next two years. It would keep funding levels at the same, roughly at the same level for 2024, and those non-defense programs would get a 1% boost in 2025. But as much as Republicans have argued this whole negotiation was about changing the trajectory of federal spending, this agreement only deals with those non-defense programs, which is really a small slice of the overall federal budget. It does not touch the biggest drivers of the debt, Medicare and Social Security. I talked to South Dakota Republican Dusty Johnson sort of about the limits of these talks. I think anybody who thought this was going to solve every single problem facing the union in one fell swoop probably needs to buy a ticket back to reality. The agreement does put a mechanism in place to try to incentivize Congress to actually pass all of its annual spending bills. If it can't, there would be a 1% across the board cut for a full year that would be set up for a vote. Okay, and can you get us up to speed now on the policy changes that we'd see here? The deal does have a few significant ones. One would help speed the approval of energy projects. The bill also includes some work requirements for some federal safety net programs like food stamps. It means that adults between 50 and 54 without dependents would have new work requirements, and those would go up through the year 2030. But those changes don't apply to Medicaid, which uh, Democrats were concerned about. And the bill actually removes some limits on work requirements or limits on those programs for veterans, homeless, and others who receive assistance like food stamps. The bill also claws back about $30 billion in unspent COVID funding. All right, Deirdre, I mean, I have to imagine this is not going to be a quick and easy road to President Biden's desk, right? (laughs) It's not. I mean, but Congress does need to act quickly. And as you know, they don't have a great track record of actually doing that. 
The Treasury Secretary said the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills as soon as June 5th. That's just a week from today. So tomorrow, the House Rules Committee is going to set up the rules for the House vote. There are two conservatives on that panel, we should note, Texas Republican Chip Roy and South Carolina Republican Ralph Norman, who oppose the bill. So they could try to block it in that committee. But Democrats could also help smooth the process to get it to the House floor. We expect a House vote Wednesday night. The Speaker pledged to give 72 hours between when the bill was released and when the vote would happen. It's 99 pages, so it's actually pretty short by most Hill standards for bills of this type. Uh, If it does get through the House and top leaders say they're confident it will, it heads to the Senate, which will call back members from recess and possibly vote as soon as Friday or over the weekend. But in the Senate, as you know, it will need 60 votes there to pass. The top Senate Republican Mitch McConnell endorsed the bill last night. And Deirdre, what is the message from the leaders of both parties to their members as to why they should back this deal? The Speaker and House Republicans are saying that they forced the president to negotiate and they got some budget cuts and policy changes. The president and Democrats and White House officials are touting what they got blocked from getting in a final deal, avoiding higher spending cuts and efforts to roll back the president's signature uh, domestic energy bill. We do expect defections from both the right and the left, uh, but we did get an endorsement from one group of House Democrats today. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you. Thanks, Juana. And now to France, which for months was gripped by protests against a measure to raise the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. Last month, that measure became law, and President Emmanuel Macron seems to have moved on. But have the protesters? NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. This month, Macron invited the CEOs of 200 multinational companies to a Choose France investment summit at the Palace of Versailles. An interviewer asked him whether it was hard to attract investors with scenes of protests and violence playing out on TV. La France est le pays le plus attractif d'Europe pour la quatrième année consécutive. For the fourth year, France is the most attractive country in Europe for foreign investment, replied Macron. A record 13 billion euros. I told Elon Musk, sure, you may have seen some violence, but that's not France. Those are extremists. The protests are peaceful and the strikes minimal. Protesters marched on the palace that day, setting off large fireworks. They also carried torches, just like the peasants who marched on Versailles in 1789 to overthrow the king. This president will refuse to meet the trade unions during our fight against the, the pension bill. Now he meet a lot of big capitalists here in the Palace of Versailles, the symbol of the absolute power of the monarchy. That's Mathieu Bolreda, head of the train drivers union. Macron promised the CEOs millions in tax breaks for investing in France. Bolreda says it's not Macron's money to give away. We the workers, we create this money. And he give this money to the bosses and he said there is no money anymore for the um, for the, the working class for our pension system so we are here to claim give me my money back riot police kept their demands from reaching the ears of macron and his guests but citizens have been dogging macron since the law passed last month banging pots and pans wherever he goes and a million French turned out on May Day. Many were angry not just at the pension reform, but at the undemocratic manner in which Macron rammed it through Parliament using a procedural measure and bypassing a vote he was likely to lose.
Adrien Arias was at the May Day protest, carrying a sign that likened Macron to Nicolae Ceausescu, the Romanian dictator deposed at the end of the Cold War. It's not just the, the reform. No, it's about democracy. It's uh, clear for most of French people that uh, there's a really big problem with the same authoritarianism. Regardless, turnout at protests is dwindling, says Corinne Maloul, a political science professor at Sciences Po University. She believes Macron has moved on. Frankly, he's not wrong. I think he made a gamble that it, it'll die down if you keep not addressing it. And he's winning the gamble because we're not talking about general strike days anymore. We're not talking about huge uh, disruptive protests with tires on fire and all of that. That's, that's over. That's behind us. I don't think it's going to happen again. Unions have called another nationwide protest early next month, hoping to push Parliament to rescind the retirement law and force it to a vote. Malul says Macron no longer has his absolute majority, but he believes he can work around Parliament. The message is, I don't care. Uh, you think I'm going to be stuck for the remainder of my term? I have four more years to go, and you think I'm going to just be a lame duck and do nothing? No, I have the power of presidential decree, and that's what I can do. Macron has never been so unpopular, adds Malul. The retirement reform crisis has reinforced the perception that he is aloof, arrogant, and detached from reality, just like the French kings at Versailles. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Versailles. Wealthy nations and private investors are set to give Vietnam billions of dollars to help fight climate change in a way that boosts the country's economic development. But as NPR's Michael Copley reports, the climate deal has come under fire because of Vietnam's human rights record. In 2021, Vietnam said it would eliminate or offset its climate pollution by mid-century. The pledge was the result of a campaign by leading climate activists. State media reported at the time that Vietnam would need financial help from wealthy nations to meet its goal. Vietnam wants to strengthen cooperation with international community in sustainable investment and development programs and projects in the time to come. A year later, a group including the G7 and big investors said they'd get Vietnam at least $15.5 billion through a program called the Just Energy Transition Partnership. But by the time the deal was announced, climate activists who'd paved the way for it were imprisoned on what human rights experts say are trumped-up charges. Emily Palami Pradichit is a human rights lawyer in Thailand. She says the way the deal was handled leaves a troubling impression. That countries who are supporting the partnership and international financial institution did not really care much about civil society and climate activists being in jail. Now, environmental and human rights groups are calling on President Biden and other world leaders to pressure Vietnam on its human rights practices. The groups want Vietnam to free all activists and stop suppressing civil society before it gets the climate funding. Activists say what's happening in Vietnam highlights a broader challenge of ensuring human rights are upheld as countries try to deal with the problem of climate change. Vietnam did recently release one of the climate activists, but so far, there's little evidence that the government is changing course. That's according to Ben Swanton. He works for a human rights group called the 88 Project. There's no desire or no political will to engage with civil society. Swanton says it's hard to see how a climate program that's aimed at benefiting local communities could succeed in that environment. Without the involvement of civil society, there will be no one to hold the government accountable when it backtracks on its promises. The White House and Vietnam's embassy in Washington didn't respond to messages. Plan for carrying out the funding program is expected by November. Michael Copley, NPR News.
Earlier this year, a Chinese spy balloon put a lot of eyes and attention on the skies above the U.S. And since then, there's also been scrutiny about the ground below and who owns it. More on the growing federal and state efforts to restrict foreign ownership of farmland on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen on air, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play your NPR member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. The time is 6.18. Coming up in about 10 minutes, a lot of people have aged out of the workforce since the pandemic hit. But there's still plenty of room for more prime-age workers in the labor force. Why that is, that story, and all the day's business news coming up at about 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the first American production of The Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. This marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater. HuntingtonTheater.org. Remember, your inbox is another easy way to follow the news from WBUR. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today is a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologics CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. In our forecast, we're looking at clear skies tonight, upper 40s. Another sunny day in store for tomorrow, highs in the upper 60s. Wednesday, bright skies warming up to 80 degrees. And you may need the AC for Thursday, a sun-filled day with a high of 88. WBUR supporters include Nuance. Nuance is committed to helping physicians restore their work-life balance with DAX an AI-powered solution that automates clinical documentation. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Every year, Memorial Day is a time for people to honor members of the U.S. military who have died while serving. For many, marking the holiday means gathering outdoors, grilling meats and vegetables. For actor Gary Sinise... It means playing music. Gary Sinise, a lieutenant in band, and I play bass. The 13-person band was in Washington, D.C. over the weekend for a special reason, to throw a welcome home celebration for Vietnam veterans 50 years after the U.S. suspended combat operations in Vietnam. When they came home from war, it was a bad time in our country. They didn't get any kind of welcome home. Many of them kind of disappeared into the shadows because it was not a good time to be a a Vietnam veteran. You know, I just want to do something to acknowledge that uh, we do welcome them home. We do celebrate them. We do appreciate their service to our country. I was walking down the street. 
in the 80s, I was very involved with supporting various Vietnam veterans organizations in Chicago. And, you know, and then after playing the, the disabled veteran in Forrest Gump, that kind of turned a little bit of a corner toward uh, trying to help our wounded, but it really all uh, just uh, kind of catapulted after the attacks of September 11th. Oh, don't you dare look back, just keep your eyes on me. I said you're holding back, she said shut up and dance with me. I volunteered to go on support trips for the USO, and I would go out just on my own and shake hands and, and uh, meet with the troops and, you know, try to get around uh, as, you know, to the war zones and whatnot. She took my arm. I don't know how it happened. We took the floor and she said. But on one of the early trips, it was a big trip, big entertainment tour, giant tour uh, in June of uh, 03. And Kid Rock was on that tour, and Leanne Womack was on that tour, and, and gosh. And I was just, uh, you know, a Gary Sinise, Lieutenant Dan, actor, uh, waving to the troops and that kind of thing. But uh, after I did five or six of those handshake tours where I'd just go out on my own, I. I finally convinced the USO to let me take the musicians with me uh, that, that I knew, the garage band players that I had. And so it started very grassroots back in, you know, 20 years ago, very rough. There's 13 members of the band. There's only three or four of us that were there in the beginning, and the rest of them have come aboard, you know, since then. Generally, for people that haven't heard the band, you know, when you tell them an actor has a band, they don't, you know, they don't kind of get too excited about that. <laughs> but this is a, this is a top-notch band. We played a lot of shows. We played 500-something shows, and we played in the war zones, and we played in hospitals, and uh, we, oh, gosh, you know, Ku Kuwait and Kandahar, and I mean, we've been we've been all over the place. And that's what the band is for. The band is. I don't play for a living. I I uh, I, you know, I make my living uh, as an actor and. I play for the mission of lifting spirits and, and raising people up. That's what, that's what I, I do with the band. So money that people contribute to the Gary Sinise Foundation allows me to do things like this today, which is provide uh, a festival atmosphere at a military base and lift people up and raise their spirits and, and uh, bring some joy and some fun. This is a, a foundation I started to, to, to give back to the men and women who protect our country and defend our cities, and, and we want them to know they're, they're appreciated. That was actor Gary Sinise talking to NPR about playing music for U.S. veterans. Sinise is the co-host of the annual Memorial Day concert at the U.S. Capitol and traveling with the Lieutenant Dan Band across the country.
time now for my unsung hero from the team at Hidden Brain, sharing the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Evelyn Flores. Growing up, her parents were flower farmers in San Mateo, Mexico. One year when Evelyn was in second grade, they fell on hard times. Money was tight and school lunches were too expensive, so her mom would bring her food. Uh, that day, I remember that she didn't make on time, make on time, and I was starving because I was so hungry. So I feel like kind of worried, and I was like, "What happened? Why my mom is not here?" For lunch, first I eat, and then I play with my friends. But that day, I was kind of sad and worried because my mom didn't make on time. So I just decided to sit in the classroom. They usually close the classroom because even the teachers. Uh, take lunch at the same time. And that time, the teacher, she was about to close the classroom and she checked that there was nobody inside and she said that it was me. Mrs. Garcia came and she was like, hey, Evelyn, why are you not going out? And I was like, no, I just want to stay here. I'm in a bad mood. I I, I don't want to play with anybody. I'm, I'm starving. And then she was like, wait a second, I'll come back now. And then she bought like a bottle of use and then a sandwich for me. And she just go, hey, Evelyn, here's for you. Eat, eat this because you still have like three more hours for school and then you'll be starving. And I don't want you to feel bad. Just eat this. And she stay with me and we start talking. And, and yeah, I, I love her personality and how she supports like she was she was my first uh, best friend and yeah and I feel so so grateful for that I want to be a teacher I like to be a teacher she was a huge inspire This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this Memorial Day. I'm Josie Guarino. It's just about 6.30. Coming up next on 90.9 WBUR, Marketplace will have all the day's business news, plus a story about how a lot of people have aged out of the workforce since the pandemic hit. But there's still plenty of room for more prime-age workers in the labor force. Why that is, is next on Marketplace on 90.9 WBUR. We're looking at sunny skies for tomorrow, temperatures in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC.